0: Thank you.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner,
2: and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy.
1: Good to be with you again, friends, as we come in with a documentary mash. It's been a little while since we've done one, I think, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, uh, it's
3: been a bit. I don't even understand time anymore.
1: <laughs> time, yeah, <laughs> the the pandemic has killed time, so there's no concept uh time is just a theory anyway and so uh this is just like our monster mash that you're all very familiar with but instead we pick horror documentaries to talk about and my name is grizzly abner and i
3: chose horror noir hi professor here i picked leap of faith
2: uh venomous vinny here I picked the documentary Tom Savini Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini. It's something close to that.
0: Does it really say his name twice in the title? Smoke and Mirrors,
2: the story of Tom Savini.
0: <laughs> and hot Toddy, I like that the Wolfman's got <laughs>
1: Big fan. <laughs> Big fan. And that being said, that is what we will lead off with. So,
0: Toddy, tell us about Wolfman's Got Nards. So, the Wolfman's Got Nards. Uh, if you're playing the game, we've said Nards three times, take a drink. Uh, so, filmed in 2018, recently released, uh, directed by the star of Monster Squad, Andre Gower. Um, and uh, do I just want to give it a little quick, or do I want to Can we touch off real quick people? on what
2: the recent happenings? Yeah. As far as that goes? Anybody?
3: yeah that, at me to do it? Andre Gower that you just mentioned the director had a heart attack and they were uh, putting up a goFundMe to try and help with the uh I'm sure extensive costs sure. that are going through
2: and I saw he had an Instagram video recently where he's back home now yeah and was just kind of running down for everybody what had happened with this heart attack that he had yeah. so he he's okay he's okay, but yeah just strange that. There always seems to be a strange coincidence whenever we choose to do things, or, and this happens to be one of them, where something noteworthy happened to the guy who starred in Monster Squad, directed this, and all that. So worth mentioning.
0: Mm-hmm. I had Definitely. picked this up when it came on on Blu-ray recently, but I have not watched it. And I I watched it after finding out that he had had a heart attack. I he he had is- had the
2: heart attack, but not after you had picked it for the cool <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was watching your guys' garbage. (laughs) Oh, duly noted for mine. Listeners at home
0: remember that. That was Todd that said that. Oh, that one I watched last year when it came out. You're late to the party on that one.
3: I watched it again, too.
0: Yes, so yeah. oh, that's the two times he's had. It's like a
3: uh, "Strangers on a Train" Hitchcock movie where they're watching <laughs> the tennis crowd, just watching back and forth. That's what me and Vinny are doing right now.
0: If you're keeping track, that's the two times in the last five years that he's had the five ninety nine shutter. That just, <laughs> actually, I think I overpriced that. I'm sorry, four ninety nine. <laughs> Tell us about your fucking movie, guitar. <laughs> So, if you haven't guessed it, The Wolfman's Gotten Got Nards is about the 1987 film, The Monster Squad. Uh, pretty much, uh, they kind of hit the road, and I think they're all very surprised that uh, this movie that should have been a huge movie for when it came out, they thought no one has seen this film, and it just basically went off to die, and then, surprise, there's actually um, been a following all along, and... Uh, so I think yeah, the director, so Fred Decker and uh, writer Shane Black. Um, and then, oh, man. man. Man, I didn't want you to get slapped. Um, <laughs> Someone just ran their car <laughs> off the road. <laughs> uh, so not only does it feature a lot of the stars from the movie, but also like um, a lot of uh, fans, so like Seth Green and a lot of uh, conventions. So also, uh, not only am I emotional from watching it from Andre Gower having a heart attack, but... Also, uh, longing for some conventions and seeing all the convention people. And, um, so good times. Uh, and that's it. And we're done with the podcast. <laughs> I like
1: that Todd was crying about the conventions while I was crying about Brent Chalem. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you want me to bring the whole thing in my, uh, talking? So then I can get yelled at. Mm. Oh boy. Well, Mommy, dad are fighting. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm
1: well, here for This it. is my first time watching this documentary, but, uh, I remember seeing uh, Monster Squad as a kid, uh, even though I didn't watch a lot of horror movies as a kid. Um, I had seen the movie poster, and there was the, 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 the tough guy kid, the, the greaser kid, and he had his, his compound bow. And I shot compound bow as a kid, and I was like, oh, man, that's like Universal Monsters and a dude that shoots a
0: bow. <laughs> Can we rent that? I'm glad that you said that because I'm like, well, there's a fat kid and I'm a fat kid. (laughs) Yes. In watching it, right. In
1: watching it, I realized I was Horace, not the cool kid with the
0: butt. Oh, I was definitely Horace.
2: Uh, That made me me laugh like George McFly, by the way.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Just can't slap the table because of the mics. Uh, This is the first time viewing for me. It's. the thing I like the most about documentaries like this, where we really just concentrate on liking a movie yeah. is it's the same things that make conventions fun yeah. because like there's been particular weekends, like one that comes to mind uh, right off the top of my head is uh, night of the creeps that Todd and I attended at flashback weekend in Chicago. I already liked that movie that weekend made me love it being around the cast and just a big time reunion enriches a movie And this does its job with that. I mean, there's some other interesting things about the documentary, I think, that I'll go into after everybody's had a chance. But at at its core, I like that about this. I feel like it it makes me want to watch Monster Squad, which is what its job should be. Mm -hmm. And I think it achieves that. Yeah.
2: This is the first time I've seen this. I I knew it was available, but it wasn't uh, easily accessible. Uh, also meaning the I name. had to pay for it <laughs> So I was glad to see that I could watch it for free Was it Voodoo that we watched it on for free Although I will complain That I constantly had to fast forward back to where I was Because when the commercials cut in It reset it earlier than what <laughs> I had watched it Huh? But I didn't pay for it So I'm not, I'm not going to bitch on that But do
1: You have the Carvana commercials committed to memory <laughs> <laughs> I know I do
2: but Monster Squad, just in itself for me, was one what, that was a find at the video store when I was a kid. We would go weekly, you know, on Friday nights, typically, pizza night, and rent some movies. And that was one that I happened to find and watch. And it was a mind blow because it was kind of like the Goonies. Uh, you can't, I don't think you can talk about Monster Squad without bringing Goonies into the equation. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> That was many years later, Uh,
3: but zing! I loved Monster Squad when I watched it. I need to admit something real quick. I the first time I saw the Goonies or the Monster Squad, I could legally vote. Wow! Didn't see either one. I mean, I and they were especially the Monster Squad. I would have loved that as a kid. Yeah. not on my radar. I There's loved it. One I
2: loved it as a kid. As a matter of fact, Tom Noonan's Frankenstein is one of my favorite non-universal Frankenstein makeups. I
1: was going to say, to be fair, at eight, at the age of this eight, is Charlie Chaplin joke. <laughs> I'm <gonna stab> you.
2: <laughs> you can't beat me to my own. Mold <laughs> <laughs> so that. Stick it back up your ass <laughs> and save it for another. So, time. so this this documentary was fun to kind of look at that because I was in that. Category where I had a best friend growing up, Adam Glass. Shout out to you, Adam Glass. Uh, We don't talk as much as we used to, but he was into all the same nerd shit I was. Cryptids and all that. And we grew up in a very small town that was a farming community. We were the weird kids. So Monster Squad was that find that scratched every itch. And he was the one guy that I could talk about that with. And all that kind of thing. So watching this, it was, I could identify with that end of people who watched it, loved it, but had no one to talk to to about it, and was this cult thing. No one else had heard of it when I was a kid. I was a grown-ass man before anybody outside of Adam Glass that I knew and my brother had seen this movie.
0: I, um, I remember when it was in the theater because, um, so I, I pretty much would frequent the, the dollar show. Um, I didn't get to see this though, because it was like there and gone so fast, but I remember the poster and it was like right on top of like masters of the universe. And so they were just churning them through, uh, that time. Um, but yeah, I, I think this one might've lasted barely a week at the, the theater, I think the, the timing was poor, but, like, uh, this is back in the 80s, though, and this is coming for me. Nobody gave a shit about box office back then. So all these movies that they talk about that are bombs, um, I remember Monster Squad being a little bit more popular, because I knew what it was from the, the theater, definitely saw the poster every day I would walk by the the, the movies, and then um, when it came on video, I think is when I watched it for the first time. You're uh, telling me the studios in the 80s didn't care what they made at the box office? Not as much. Most of the movies that people talk about today were box office failures. The Thing, John Carpenter, uh, Overboard, people love that movie. A uh, huge disaster.
3: I think the clarification we need here is fans didn't care. Studios always care about the money, but it wasn't as, there wasn't as well, much
0: gravity put on it. Well, maybe it wasn't that you, well, yes and no. Because also, Overboard didn't have to make $100 million to make its money back either. It was a $2 million movie. But this movie, like, was just, a, like, whoever, like, I guess I never really paid attention to the ads that they show in the documentary. Those guys were morons. And why would you open this movie on top of Lost Boys? And also, obviously, they hated these people because they were right. Every movie that came out like this, they were all PG. Because actually, there's a bunch of movies that fit right into this. All PG because they hold the record for being PG and still getting to say the F-bomb. Like, Beetlejuice and etc. Um, so why was this movie PG-13? But, um, I don't know. A lot of the movies that I loved as a kid, I guess I just didn't care. Because you know what? Showtime and HBO didn't care either. Because they played them every hour on the hour. They
2: played the fuck out of them. Monster Squad, Howard the Duck.
0: Mention. I had no idea Howard the Duck was a box office failure. Because, shit, they played it every hour on the hour. Did it give you a weird
2: duck titties boner?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> wrong guy to ask
3: you so, uh, Tim, Tim Robbins say that when he saw the duck they were in trouble <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good well time. five minutes into this documentary and I knew it was going to have a level of heart that a lot of other documentaries does yes have. yeah five minutes in and I was like
2: okay well there's me. a huge connectivity to it as well just because of the subject matter and the nostalgia button that it punches with a hammer fist mm-hmm
3: Uh, I want to touch on something that I think is really interesting about this, but isn't the driving force on why you're watching it. And that is the difference in careers and how people are reflecting on this movie. I feel like the guys making this, this was it, and they were robbed of it because of the circumstances with how it performed in the theater. And so it almost feels like they're seeking that praise and saying, hey, no, 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 look this much time has passed and look how it's done in all these other forms. Yeah. And I'm not saying they don't deserve that. I'm just saying like, it feels like the driving force behind it is saying, this is the reality. It wasn't that we got boxed out by lost boys, but then you flip that and you talk to Decker, the director who's never shied away from being honest about anything when he's talking. And he's, he's bitter about how it, played out yeah, and it hurt his career. He thinks he did a great job on it, but which he did. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's interesting to compare those two and the perception of cult following. Mm -hmm. There
2: is a certain level of validation being sought with this. I do agree
3: with that. And at the same time, the director, he's still done other things and he has other things to hang his hat on. And so he's a little bit more blunt and I think he's still proud of the movie and all that. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's easier for him to have these other things to hang his hat on. And so I, I, I just, as I watched this, I kept thinking, it's interesting the, how the careers played out, what the experience of looking back on this is. Yeah. Because, and in all fairness, those guys, I'm not being hard on them, but that's a much bigger deal to them mm-hmm. because that was it. Like, uh, you know, that was a big part of their life. And so it makes more sense that they're going to have this heartfelt experience to share with everybody. But I, I think it's interesting to run them parallel like they do. It's
2: a similar tone to Best Worst Movie mm-hmm. with Troll yeah. 2, except that Monster Squad was actually a
1: good movie, good something movie of, and right? something
2: to be proud of that <laughs> should have performed better when it came out and it didn't. And it took audiences a while to age into it and appreciate it for what it was. Uh, and I think the... But what's funny is the difference in the director's tones from those two documentaries as well when they look back on it. Because Monster Squad, it has the visual effects are great. The makeup is fantastic in that movie. That is my second favorite Gilman. Oh, yeah. And I only like the original Gill Man because it was the original Gill Man. you know what right. I mean? But it was a, a great take on on, on the Gilman. Uh Professor, I've been wanting to ask this forever. Uh how butthurt are you about the treatment of the mummy <laughs> in that movie? Uh,
3: not surprising. <laughs> it, you know, it's fine. I I I have a, a very big soft spot for mummy movies, and but I realize that they can't all be
2: but what I, I I really liked uh, when they talked about the Wolfman, how they got to do so many different Wolfmans in mm-hmm. one movie, and I never really thought about it before. But they're like didn't. they're like we got to do uh, Werewolf of London when he's in the phone booth. Pay homage to that makeup. We got to pay homage to the regular Wolfman. We got to pay homage to the the Hammer Werewolf movie with this makeup. And they're absolutely right, and I feel so stupid that I never picked up on it when I was watching it before, but they're absolutely right.
3: But that just perfectly illustrates how entertaining it is, that they're not having to knock you over the head at saying, look at what we're nodding to. Yeah. Like, it's just organic. Yeah.
0: I um, <clears throat> I agree with what you're saying, because I think even the way the documentary's set up, because Shane Decker's not bitter or anything. Shane Decker has, like, continually... Worked. I mean, he was in the in the first Predator, wrote the last Predator movie, uh, Lethal Weapon. Like, he's had a, a huge success after Monster Squad, where everybody else really should have. And I think that's, because um, I do have, uh, I had to write her name down, but Mary Ellen Trainer, who also has passed away. She's had a huge career, too. And I, I think that's why they don't touch on her as much, because it is tragic that here they've all thought they were, uh, you know, taking off and they were going to be in this huge thing. And, and it went nowhere. And so it was sad when they started talking about um, the, the cast member that played um, Horace. Um, i sure down. sorry. Brent Chalen. Yes. So because um, it, it does. He probably just thought he was in this disaster movie that nobody gave a shit about. And not only that, but like if you watch the when you're watching the doc, because I think it's the same way. Um, there's a lot of movies I like as a kid that I, I just they're fun. But there are certain movies that you really saw yourself in. Um, or you're really related to. And I think this is one of them. I think it's why so many people have loved this movie. And then I just to go on for years and they think nobody's kind of gave two shits. Even I think when they did the first screening, they were kind of like, well, okay, whatever. And then it sold out like in uh, record numbers to where they had to do all these extra shows. Um, I don't know. I, I was, I guess I wasn't expecting this one to be as, uh, emotional as, as this one was. And it definitely hit. And then I there's some people in the documentary that I've met at convention. So there's some convention friends in there. Uh, and then with all that had just happened with Andre, and uh, I would almost be embarrassed, but I don't give a shit, but I actually teared up toward the end of this thing because um, that alone and, and when the director is doing stuff with uh, Ashley Banks, um, where he's, you know, like setting up that Frankenstein's, like, going away. And... Um, there's just all these cool elements, and just even the way they broke down. Um, I was actually, I guess I was hoping this was going to be good, but sometimes I get really hyped for these, these docs, and they're not always good. Um, but even like the, um, the film professor that teaches this in his class. Um, cause what a perfect movie, too, because there's all these segments as well where it, it does have the cancel culture just salivating of like, you know they say the word faggot, and they um,
1: fat shame. Yeah, Horace. fat
0: shame and and slut shame, and <clears throat> um, and I do agree. They actually said if it was remade today, that it probably would be Phoebe that's trying to get all the guys to join her. Um, I don't know. I, I just think I think the Monster Squad the movie had a lot of heart. The actors are all really pretty awesome, and um, and I think it showed up in the documentary as well. So well,
2: and I I think that the kid who played... Uh, he was Wayne in The Wonder Years. What's his name? Jason Hervey. Yeah. Oh, the bully. Who played the absolute asshole. And I think people do react a lot to the fact that they use slurs in this movie. Homophobic slurs. But I, number one, I do agree that growing up, and I think anybody can attest to this in the Midwest, that was an insult hurled by every kid.
3: Yeah. Also... Be cautious because that will ruin a whole lot of eighties. Yeah, like, like teen well, movies, but not only that.
2: Everywhere the kid is supposed to be an asshole, yeah. right? <laughs> He's, He's supposed the, to be an asshole. The
0: hero didn't utter that line.
2: Yeah, the dickhead heel did.
1: Yes.
0: Well, and and then you know, like they said, and and you know, I wish I I, I saw this in the theater like last year, I think, when they replayed it at uh, Miami'sburg. But seeing this in the original, where they just talk about you know the scene with horse gets to cock the gun and um, you know, if they just said some, some goofy stuff to him, nobody would have gave a shit. But yeah, when you're like, and that's the thing, people can admit it or not. Like you can cancel all the stuff you want. You can't change people. Like let's work on the actual behavior. I would rather watch a movie from 1980 knowing that people were like, man, I should have never said that word. And I'm going to teach my kid not to say that word. than to cancel the movie, But find it acceptable that grown ass adults are talking this way right now. Um, You know, that's more my problem. You can't, don't quit trying to bury stuff that's already out there. And um, if you think of all the 80s, just all the 80s kids' movies alone, even Bill and Ted, you know, they, like, they all use at least the F bomb. Um, Not fucked. But. Well, they're also, and I hate saying, this is weird to say, but they, they're not doing it, they're not taking the gay kid in the movie and calling him a fag. They're just saying, it's, it is, it's It's just a slur. It's just like them saying, damn it. And it's usually uh, as a burn or it's the asshole saying it. So it is a little weird watching it now, but I mean, are you going to delete all those scenes? It's and, a product of its yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. I find it weird when I watch something now, but honestly, people still say that. I don't know if people know that or not.
3: Um, I think the the tribute to Horace is they nailed it. Um, I found I'm not an overly emotional guy when I'm watching this stuff, and that even touched me. And we've covered on this show in the past, this movie, and Rybone shared his story with us on there about um, living near where his parents did mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. And connecting with them, and the mother or a stepmother, stepmother, uh, giving him Brent's cast-only poster. It's like yeah. a thick cardboard, and letting him take that since he had reached out to her and loved the movie.
1: Yeah, I wrote to her to say I wrote to what he thought was both parents, but but, but Brent's father had passed away by that time. I wrote to to say um, you know I just want you to know that like his life mattered getting choked up, uh, that, you know, him being in this film was such an important thing for every kid that looked like him yeah. for the every, you know, every, every kid that, that was the monster squad and his role in that. And so, uh, uh, you know, it, it's before, you know, it's probably before we were doing cons and it was before, you know, the, they all really knew that. And of course, Brent never got to know that. So just to reach out to her, the, the parents and say, I just, I just want you to know that like his life matters and that's, it was important to me.
3: Yeah, and I, I feel like they—they they just tonally they struck it perfect oh. because they didn't pander too much, trying to get you with the sap or, or weeping. It was just—it—it just seemed so honest because I feel like they really do feel that void of we're getting to have so much fun now, like we'd all hoped we would when we were kids, and you're not here to do it with us. Yeah, and I just—I just, I just love the way they hit that. Can we definitely cried. Definitely can we trust. can we take a brief
2: moment to have a Midwest Monsters side note to I thought you were gonna say group house <laughs> I just did. We just okay, did. all right. I missed it. I went to pee, folks. Vinny
1: <laughs> <laughs> peed for the third time during this episode on my back and he still
2: didn't hear that. <laughs> all right. Um,
0: um, and I, I was kinda of hoping um because they mentioned Horrorhound Cincinnati. Before we leave Horace, real
1: quick, I just want to say what a bum deal he got pneumonia. Yeah. They gave him the wrong medication mm. because he had asthma and he died
3: from it. Mm. And it's like, man. It's twice as painful. Like yeah. young young death complications like that it's Easily sad. But to know that it yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a Which I, I, I don't think I really knew um, exactly like when he died, but I think he was only like twenty two. He was young. Uh, um but I was gonna say is uh they had I one of the anniversaries and and they were all at, most of them were at Horrorhound. And they actually show Horror hound like, because they have the poster, and they show some of them there. I was almost kind of hoping that Rybones might have squeaked in.
3: I reached out to Rybones when they started making this, and we're talking about it on Instagram. I was like, "You have to reach out to them and tell them your story." I don't know if you ever. Well, tried. he he
0: sh- he did share because uh, we met. Um, so we met Andre, and then um, Rudy is played by Ryan Lambert. So they uh, seems like they kind of pair up together quite a bit, and they had a lot lot of the Monster Squad cast there but they almost shared a booth. Cause when you went, went up, you met both of them. They took photos with you and they interacted really well. And I remember he shared like, cause he had that poster and he shared the story with them. So it'd been kind of cool if it would have been featured in, um, but yeah, I'm, I know that, Andre know
1: right away. He was like,
0: how'd you get this poster? Yeah. He, cause, cause they, uh, I, I don't think we might have left that part out for this one is that the poster was like a promotional thing that the cast members got only. So, um, so he actually, his stepmother had actually gave that poster to Ryan. Um, so, and it's got quite a few names on it, but yeah, they already kind of knew what it was. And then as he shared the story and, and that's the thing too, is I think all of these people are really legit that, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure even just him sharing the story, like, probably touched him. I mean, I listened for the whole thing, because I hate stepping on... I kind of already met him. I didn't want to be up in why he's, like, sharing his stuff. Uh, but it would have been cool if it would have made it into the the documentary.
1: Um. We're going to have to move along, so I just want to share the notes that I had so far because we're about to hit the 30-minute mark.
0: Okay. So all about you. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we don't need it to be a three-hour podcast. Mm,
0: okay.
1: uh, and <laughs> then everybody else can hit their notes. But um, just the bad reviews that this film got when it came out. Just unreal. Unreal. I mean, and one of my favorites of the show was that it was referred to as a silly, cheerless Horror comedy. Who sits down and watches this and could possibly call it
3: cheerless? Yeah, I was going to say silly horror comedy. Okay, that's yeah, fine. But it, it's not uh, cheerless. Someone to call
0: Monster Squad cheerless? Blue yeah,
3: line. to me it hits all the things that it sets. I out. think
0: the average critic hates movies, and they definitely hate genre films. So yeah. they, they only like genre films if. Like comic book movies, they hated and then they started making 100000000 million. They're like, oh, I love this next Lotus comic a, book movie.
2: Critic is in the job title. That's what you're paid to do. You're yeah. paid to criticize.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, what about the... I never knew about the the wanted posters
0: that they made. That, was, a, yeah. that, that was so I had trash. Had no idea of. Yeah, the, uh, definitely the, <laughs> the mummy. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I can't believe that they would even put that on a, a billboard. Silly Dracula! What is a
2: statutory rap? Yes. <laughs> was for the mummy.
0: Why well, would you advertise that on a film like this?
1: <laughs> They're like, well, not only do we have all this stacked against us, those totally about the dumbass boosters <laughs> someone made. Um, they, <laughs> the uh, I love that they found that print of the film in New Zealand because it didn't exist anywhere. Like, you know, you couldn't; no one had copies. There was no DVD release. Uh, and I remember, I think professor, you and I, were we in college when this came out on DVD? Cause we were both pretty stoked to go get it. Cause it was the first time it came out on DVD yeah. and which I knew it was probably the first time you had watched it, yeah. but you had told me like, Oh, this special release is coming out. And I was like, no way. And so I've still got my DVD copy that I bought. That was the first time it ever. Had made it to DVD.
3: Yeah, most of my memories of releases up here in Muncie uh, are forgettable because my Terror Train one was so disappointing. <laughs> I showed up to Best Buy for the big day, thinking like, hell, they might have them lined up. I came in, they were like, what? But I found like <laughs> one copy over on a side shelf. I was like, all right.
1: He was cosplaying
0: as Jamie <laughs> from Terror Train.
3: It's actually David Copperfield.
1: Where uh,
0: Abner never forgets that time that he spent 1999.
1: On film. <laughs> <laughs> the time I pried.
0: <laughs> open my wallet <laughs> to get it for uh, a, and I yeah. think Monster Squad was definitely one of them too where people were I mean not only that it just had gone away like the, all, all prints were kind of lost um, they were trying to find who had the rights to it and I think Lionsgate was sitting on it and had no idea yeah. just because they had acquired uh, the previous studios that owned it
2: I think that Monster Squad, I'm glad to see it get the appreciation that it deserves this many years later. I'm glad to see the cult following. I'm glad to see the cast of a movie that was disappointing in the beginning. I'm glad to see them get something in return for X amount of years later. I hope that I do something where 30 years from now I can go out and make some money on the convention
1: circuit. Well, it's easily going to be Creepy Uncle Ned. <laughs>
3: I'll be in my 70s. Yeah, I figure one day they're going to discover our My Pet Monster movie. <laughs> I'll be signing
2: autographs.
1: Um, I love that uh, Adam Goldberg, the uh, director of the Goldbergs, was in this, and he's like, he's like, do you realize how many- I never
0: noticed that, that how many times that they say nards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just a montage of how many times they said nards in the Goldbergs. And I, I didn't have any idea either, Todd. like I was like, oh my God, they said nards all the time in Goldbergs. He was like, yeah, it's my love letter to, <laughs> to Monster Squad. I love that,
3: that that show has made him one of the go-tos for topics like this now. Because yeah. he should be in there. It was cool to see. Him. Yeah,
1: love it. Uh, just one of the last things I'll say here too uh, at the very end I liked um, they they took the dog and pony show over to England and there was that sweet little girl who loved the movie but because England's rules are still so strict and it's 15 and up even if you're with a parent you can't go in to watch it but they made a they, she couldn't go in and watch the film but they they made damn sure that she could come in for the Q&A
2: which I was amazed that there's any place on earth that is more puritanical than Modern day America, right. I just look like
1: you got like English bobbies at the door making sure fit no one under fifteen gets into this film where you're going to get a billy club.
0: Uh, I I did like uh, again uh, all the scenes with uh, Fred Decker and Ashley Banks, but equally is the scene with Dracula where they just didn't tell her what he was going to say. Oh, man. I was uh, like, man, uh, that's where he's hard yeah, and left- number one. You sh-
2: They show you how they did it, which is neat to see that. But then, yeah, to see why she gave such a real reaction. Well, and
0: she explained, too, that he kept his eyes closed and his mouth closed. So she didn't know he had contacts in or fangs. And then does that, hisses at her. And after he calls her a bitch, <laughs> he like, yeah, she's Fred Decker is like, You're going to scream when he says something to you. And she's like, She's like, being even at a young age, I was an actor of like, well, when will that be? And he's like, you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> this
2: practice of scaring the fuck out of your actors that will come up again in this episode is just incredible to me.
1: Good stuff. I yeah, I, I'll just I'll say at the beginning, I got a little bogged down with like the behind the scenes of like making the film because I'm just not that's not my favorite part about these documentaries. I was like, oh man, is this going to drag through this? But then it just really blossomed and became the documentary I wanted it to
0: be. And and to touch on the uh, Best Worst Movie, um, where it's cool that he got to experience the same thing, but unlike him, where he goes in and is like, these fucking freaks! <laughs> <laughs>
2: these guys got halitosis!
0: <laughs> all the plaque
3: and gingivitis! <laughs> yeah, I would recommend this. It's a good time. Absolutely If you're a fan it. of the movie, even if you're missing conventions, it Hit some of those sweet spots. Yep.
0: All right. Okay. Good times.
1: On to the next. Uh, we decided to do Professor's Pick
3: next. Yes. Should be a quick one.
0: So, Leap of Faith, starring Steve Martin. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Uh, Leap of Faith, William Freakin on The Exorcist, 2019, directed by Alexandra O. Thank you for the exotic intro. <laughs>
3: Seriously, it sounded nice. Uh, the director was the main draw for me on this um, mm-hmm. because of three that have been made so far uh, that I found very interesting 7852, which is all on the shower scene in Psycho. Oh. It is um, check that out. very intricate, but it never feels like it. It's oh. fascinating. Uh, memory about uh, Alien and the People versus George Lucas. Huh. So some really interesting topics and the presentation and all of them are always top shelf. Mm-hmm. So I was interested to see, uh, how they would approach with this. Had anybody watched this yet? No,
0: I wanted to, but I hadn't. Yes. I had seen you,
3: it had, you had, you had already seen it. Okay. So I picked a movie that I hadn't seen that Vinny had. Uh, it's just cause <laughs> I wanted to watch it. So, um, Really, it's it's pretty straightforward. There's not much to go through here other than examples, but it's an in-depth interview with Friedkin talking about what influenced him, and he cites very specific examples, and they show you uh, with really excellent editing um, tying these things into it. And so I think what I found most interesting about this, uh, for starters, right up front, I am – always fascinated with directors and their approach to things. That's not going to be everybody's angle on, on learning more about movies. But for me, I love, you know, the, the theory of auteurs and, and how they put their product forth. So with this, I was interested to hear from him this in depth because he's a, he's a difficult personality and I don't think that they sugarcoat that in this documentary Um, and he typically in interviews, I feel like will be very brief and blunt. And so I was fascinated with the concept of having a feature length film with him staying basically on topic, which it does. And so he sorts through um, just different things, both in his history with being a fan of film and life experiences and things that he likes and explaining how that influenced The Exorcist. And I'll be honest, it's not going to be for everybody, but at the same time, and in fairness, we already have endless documentaries on The Exorcist. So if people are tuning in to get that, it's already out there. So, But just a heads up, you're going to be disappointed if you just want all the ins and outs of the production of The Exorcist. Uh, And Hell Shutter even did Cursed Films, (laughs) if you want to see that angle of it too but so i mean he's going through um the ideas of faith and fate and he's citing movies um like citizen kane the idea of gaining everything but selling your soul uh he's referencing um dryers or day, or it's said different in every country yeah but the idea of redemption um and the religious uh, themes within that but he it jumps all over the place and it's it's tough to adapt to. It was for me at first because I felt like, okay, now we're talking about paintings. Now we're talking about a Zen garden. Right. But I will say once it was finished, a day or two later, I was still kind of thinking about some of those things. And I think that this is one of those pieces of work that we'll appreciate down the line a little bit more than Mm -hmm. we do the first time viewing and in the moment when he's still around. But the idea that you could take a movie that is as interesting as the exorcist and have the director explain you for an hour and a half, every little thing that influenced him. I just, I did find very interesting, but at the same time I thought while I was watching it, I wonder if these guys are going to be bored to tears with this. Mm. So I'm interested to hear just kind of what everybody's experience with it was.
2: This is the second time I've watched it. I love a documentary, and I watch a lot of Shudder. This has been on Shudder for a little bit. So I after the first time, I did not mind revisiting this in the least after you had picked it. Um, I guess, and this is a complaint I've heard from you guys previously on just flow of documentaries yeah. before. I don't seem to be as sensitive to that as uh, you guys are. I enjoyed it. I, I, like, I always enjoy hearing where influences came from, uh, weird little stories. It, I found it interesting, and we may talk about it later, about how you know there were friendships lost mm-hmm. over decisions that were made on the aesthetics of this movie. Yep. And so I just always find it interesting, especially when, when... Because a lot of times when you get a movie like this, they'll focus on the actors because that's the face of the product when you watch it as a viewer. Where was Linda Blair's interview in this? Mm-hmm. There was none because that's not what it was about. Right. So to see the vision that a director had and how that played out and honestly, the sacrifices that he made to get the end product that he wanted, I, I found it to be a very, very interesting story and it, it just as much so
3: with the second viewing. Awesome.
0: No. <laughs> well, uh, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh. No, I want you to go first. No, please.
3: i will got go to turn. No, you go. No, you go. No, you go. What a treat. Uh
1: I really enjoyed it, but you know, The Exorcist is one of my top 5 favorite films in the genre and probably in my top 10 or 20 of all time or any genre. Um so yeah, I really enjoyed it and um yeah, just some really fascinating stuff in it that I'm sure we'll get into a little bit, but, um, wasn't what I thought I was getting into, and, but
0: I like it. Yeah. While I was watching it, I was like, oh, Abner's really gonna effing hate this movie. <laughs> um, the jumping around thing, I noticed pretty early on, but honestly, that is, that's how my mind works, because, uh, I actually do it all. I try to catch myself from doing it a lot, but I do it all the time. Uh, usually I will start talking and people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because we were talking about blue curtains, but I'm like, well, I have blue curtains and that made me think of the Smurfs and, uh, <laughs> you know, the Smurfs, there was a blonde girl and have you seen Romeo and Michelle? That's how my mind works. Um, and usually I won't say any of that out loud. So I just start talking about Romeo and Michelle and people look at really me strange. Um, <laughs> I thought it was cool because I have seen. Um, I think one of the best docs that I that I've ever seen. I think we just lost Vinny. Uh, Vinny just peed for the fourth time <laughs> in this episode. Get off my back! Uh, do we need to catch you up on what we just talked about? No, just okay. Nice. Um, there's a probably one of the best docs that I've seen of The Exorcist is when they came out with like the director's cut or whatever that was. Where they added the, the version cool, you've never seen. Yeah, they added Spider-Man. some cool, cool stuff with it. Um, there's a documentary that came, um, that was VHS days, um, really um, like almost a full-length movie just on crazy stories and all kinds of stuff of The Exorcist. Um, I don't think he's featured in it very much, because that's what I was getting ready to say. is I don't think he's someone that's really known to really talk about stuff. Um, so it's more of the actors griping about all of the like him shooting off guns and um, I'm sure that they appreciate it later but I know in the document the documentary I seen Jason Miller was like he shoots off one more gun and I'm gonna kill him Um, or it would talk about like where Linda Blair um, like her harness is coming off so some of the things that they're actually that look painful that they're acting it's really not them acting they were really kind of hurt so um I thought this was cool. I loved all the backstories. Um I think it did run a little long for just having somebody sitting in a room talking, but you know, we've already lost the um the author of the book, so who, you know, you never know. And like you said, this is definitely going to be something um um you know, a few years from now we might actually think it's too short. So um but I yeah, really enjoyed it. I always I always like the weird behind the scenes stuff of movies. movie, so
3: One thing I really, really appreciated about this is that it's not hollow in terms of him talking about influences. Like, a lot of times you get directors that will talk about whole eras or subgenres. He hones in specifically to a painting to explain that that's where I got the idea for the famous shot of Maris arriving with the light coming out on him. Mm -hmm. Like, I love that instead of just glossing over with ideas and concepts, he's saying, no, here specifically, I like the idea of all of this being for nothing. Look at the end of Stanley Kubrick's, the killing, and they edit in the scene and inform the viewer. You don't have to have seen 3 billion movies to keep up with Freakin's extensive knowledge. They are expertly editing this to inform you to where if you want to go watch it, great. Hopefully it turns some people onto some of these movies, but you don't have to know them because they do such a good job presenting that. And I think once I let this sit with me for a couple of days, the thing I kept going back to that I, it hit me strange when I watched it, but I appreciated more was his story of the Zen garden Mm. because at the time I was like, what? (laughs) Like he, But the more I thought about it and the way they edited the footage of the exorcist and the characters and the idea of him being just emotionally devastated, looking at these rocks in the garden and kind of absorbing the idea of being alone mm-hmm. and them injecting footage of the exorcist. I just thought, you know, a couple of days later just sitting there letting it marinate. I thought that was so smart the way they did that because I didn't fully grasp it watching it, but the concepts he's explaining and then them taking footage from the movie that lines up with it, even if you don't agree with the philosophy or what Mm -hmm. he's getting out of a Zen garden. But I I thought that that was an interesting, unique situation.
1: I just love the idea of you sitting in your car on your lunch break eating a cheeseburger (laughs) thinking of a Zen garden and you're like, huh. Start
0: weeping. That's (laughs) it. Just just, just tears well, also again the timing of watching this is is we're just now coming around like this is the second time we've got to all meet so you're watching where he's just like you know in the end we're all alone we've just all experienced that kind of for like the past year so
3: and it instantly added gravity to that movie like just what what, what spoke to me
2: in it was his uh his vision and how far he was willing to go to stick to that to the point of he had a friend do the composing for it for Lilo the music Schifrin. and didn't like what he heard and was like this isn't it man and lost a friendship over it who
3: by the way is still alive and you could still bend ways if you wanted to <laughs> yeah
2: and, and went on because he that's not what he had envisioned um, the story of the lady who did the voice for Reagan. When she was possessed, ah, oh, yeah, and the process that was gone through—gargling eggs, yeah—just some wild shit like that, uh, and the fact Stacy Keach,
0: I had never I, knew that originally I did, I being
2: cast that. as a uh, what's what's the character's name, I'm sorry, Karis, yeah, uh, and they like they had to buy him out, they had yeah. to pay him his full fee
1: based on his role as Martin Luther when they did a, one, an early biopic on Martin Luther
3: the reformer. They're
1: like, yeah, he's good. He Which again
3: goes back to the great editing because they use footage of him in that backing out and leaving the room uh-huh. when they're talking about paying him out. Like just smart little editing decisions. Like but that.
2: crazy to me that you pay an actor his full fee. Yeah, and I, to bring in somebody else to all come
0: because in.
3: he believed.
0: But wild. honestly, but honestly, I mean, I'm, I think everybody here probably knows who Stacey Keach is and his work. Can you imagine The Exorcist with him? I don't think it would have worked. Yeah, I
2: don't think it would have been the same.
0: Um, I, I This is the first time I've ever seen them where um, I guess I just never caught on, but they're like, you know, Linda Blair had to say all of those lines before we dubbed them. Mm-hmm. So I had never seen where she's, and it's probably my adolescent mind, but I giggled <laughs> and listened. Because it just, it, it, you know, in the movie we hear a demon voice, so it's not as funny, but just hearing Linda Blair say some of the lines, uh, Your mother sucks, <laughs> Would you say your mother so socks? <laughs> um, I don't know. I th- I, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. The sound tr- the original soundtrack came up a few years ago because they were talking about releasing it, and they had put out the banned trailer, so it's featured in that, which I think it was mostly banned because people were... were uh, it's a lot of flashes and scary shit, but uh, I think people started having seizures from the flashes. Uh, that score is terrifying. And again, it's something that I never thought about. That this is, he was just so into this project. Of um, To me, if I was making this movie, I would have used the terrifying score. And he's like over here, like, I wanted like a lullaby. And um, I never had realized that Tubular Bells was a popular song before The Exorcist. Um, I mean, not like top 40.
3: It went, it skyrocketed it. But yeah, it was a huge progressive. The, so, the song, the music it comes from is a. Ex, like extensive. It's,
1: it's like a 40-minute song. Yeah, It's a noise experimentation sort of thing. It is, did Fish it. write it? <laughs> yeah, no, there's no vacuum
3: right. cleaners.
0: But, <laughs> but, but I mean, if you were making a horror film about the possession of a, a little girl, would you pick Two Billiard Bells? And you know what? The thing is, though, it, I associate that with this movie. That those pure moods, bullshit albums that come on at like 2.30 in the morning when I'm going to bed, I'm like, thank you, you motherfuckers, because now I'm thinking of The Exorcist. Because <laughs> now I associate Um, but especially like as horror movies were coming out, you typically didn't use the soft lullaby type theme to scare the crap out of people.
3: Yeah. Um, I've, I've listened to him on, um, within other interviews, he's got a great biography I read. He's a fascinating director. My one complaint with this documentary is that I feel like they sidestep some of his, uh, potential regrets. Mm. And if we're reflecting on something from this many years ago, I want to hear what he wishes he'd done differently. Now, in fairness to the director, they may have agreed on everything up front that he's not talking about this, this, or this. I don't know. But for instance, the two women, uh, Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn, both have permanent injuries Mm. from their time on this movie, never addressed. And so, and the reason I say this is not to give him a hard time, but I listened to him express deep regret for the car chase scene in french connection because they did that without permits so if you put that movie on again sometime when they're racing around in new york the people you see around are new yorkers they could have killed people they were going down under the l in these car Mm -hmm. chase scenes now they clearly were blocking off stoplights and stuff but the city wasn't a part of that wow so it was very very dangerous and he has expressed deep sobered regret for that. I would have liked to have heard some of that within this film unless maybe he just doesn't happen, but I felt like they kind of avoided the tough stuff in that regard. I felt
0: like there was a couple moments too that cuz there was jumping around, but it did feel like a couple things jumped and never came back like almost like editing. But also, I equally would love this documentary about cruising. Like I want the yeah. side stories of, you know, I sent Al Pacino in with the wrong handkerchief and he came out <laughs> sad. <laughs> he got peed on like me 10 minutes yeah <laughs> well back. you are wearing a yellow handkerchief in your back pocket Here to party yeah any
3: other influences that he cited that anybody wants to mention that they liked
1: no just with the paintings I like Caravaggio's artwork and so it was neat for him to talk about his use of darkness and how it was influenced by Caravaggio and then like I just thought it was very funny how much he hammered on the, the ups of Steve McQueen and how he used it. He was like, that's my influence. And he was like, just all these zooming in on Steve McQueen. I'm like, okay,
3: we get it. <laughs> you love it. So uh, former co-host of the show said Steve McQueen was not a good
0: actor. Just like wow. to always remind listeners when I can't of that <laughs> as you were. Wow. Um, something I've never thought about is the ending and, and he brings it up. I
2: hadn't either.
0: And honestly, like, yeah, I mean, th- I, it actually, that's probably what stuck with me the most after this is it. Cause it, just kept making me think of it because he was kind of giving his point of view and how, you know, he kind of wanted just him. He would just be the demon from there on out. And then, you know, that, um, that Blatty actually was like, no, like he, he, he knew what he was doing when he jumps out the window. Mm -hmm. Um, Which to me, I'm like, I'm, I think there's some things in here that's even deeper when you keep thinking about it. But to me, I'm like, you know, um, I've never thought about the angle either that this whole thing was to target him. I never thought about that. To me, it was just a possession of a little girl. Yeah. So as many times as i watched The Exorcist, I've never thought of that angle. And it kind of, that to me was what resonated because, again, it's about a... Pre- he has lost his faith. He's has this huge guilt over his mother. And to me, the ending of the movie, not only has he found his faith, but he saves this little girl and he sacrifices himself... To do it. And again, I know they bring up that if he did what he did, then, you know, suicide's a big no-no. But to me, it's still like this huge sacrifice he made to save this little girl, even after, you know, he just got his faith back. But to me, it would make sense because, you know, it's like he can't save his mother and he has all this guilt. And, you know, um, again, something I, I never really thought about either is he never knew the little girl. Pre-possession Yeah So he's even just Saving this little girl From her Telling her You know That your mom's Sucking cocks in hell So that shows How much faith He got back
3: Inherent good And
0: evil <laughs> That's why it's, And it's interesting to me That
1: I got that From the very first time I saw the film And it wasn't like A prominent thing That most people Took away from the film and That's
0: probably why We chose our career paths the way we did
1: <laughs> <laughs> And that's what Took me to seminary The end of The Exorcist Yeah So Yeah I'm glad he explained it. Last thing I was just going to say is I like that. He makes the point that there's no wasted shots in the film. Yeah. No wasted shots. Everything he did, did through that film was with very clear purpose and intention.
3: Yeah. So I would recommend this to a whole bunch of different groups of people that might be interested. I think that even if you're not a director obsessed, if you like the exorcist, you're going to get something out of it. But freaking is, uh, so entertaining. He's, you can tell he's, uh, he's, just got to be difficult to work with. He's volatile, probably an asshole at times, but he knows his stuff and he's interesting. And I think that there's not a ton of directors. You could listen to talk for a hundred minutes about one movie. And it, it never really feels that way. It's put Mm -hmm. together really well. I'm interested to see what else this director continues to do. I mean, his vision
0: also worked too, because not only did it, uh, get nominated, it didn't win best picture, which is why it's still called a horror film. But, uh, I think it was like nominated for 10 Oscars and it won quite a few. And it did win um, Golden Globe for Best Picture. Um, But also a movie of the subject matter that came out on like the day after Christmas. Um, Which I always argue to me, The Exorcist, um, like uh, Exorcist, The Conjuring, those kind of films. To me, if I didn't have a deep faith, those are the kind of movies that's going to get me to go to church. Not, not the, I'm not going to start worshiping Satan after watching them. Like I, I never quite. Uh, Yeah, the
3: idea of The Exorcist (laughs) is not to lobby for Satan. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Very powerful. Anyways, check it out.
0: Yeah. All right. On to the next. This would be the Venomous Ones pick. Toddy. All right. So, uh, Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini, 2015, directed by Jason Baker, uh, featuring... Tom Savini, and a whole lot of cool genre actors, and um, a- again, another film that made me long for conventions, because many of the con- normal convention people show up in this. So,
2: I have I watched this one once before. Uh, I picked it just because I think that everybody at this table has had an experience with Tom Savini mm-hmm. at a convention. Uh, I'm going to Make a bet that it wasn't a good experience And After watching this It gave me a different point of view of Tom Savini And so I just kind of wanted everybody else to watch it So we could talk about it
0: I I've met him a few times I've always had good experiences with Tom Savini Did you have a woman with you? No, Well, I mean, me <laughs> um I, he went and tried to look at my titties. I will say it's it is weird because I did the one time bring up Perks of Being a Wallflower, which he mentions in the movie, that I was just surprised that he showed up in it and I loved the book and I loved the movie and I thought that was cool. And I also had mentioned the extreme um, home makeover that I had seen. Cause um you don't typically see people like Tom Savini on those shows. <laughs> um so I get I mean like I think I think it's uh if you're sitting at a table and you are a celebrity, especially if you're in front of the camera, people expect you to be this huge, like, uh, extrovert and talk your ear off and listen to everything you have to say. So I think it's weird. Um, you know, I, I get he said some shitty things to people, but I think a lot of the times he's just more quiet and reserved. And at the same time, he's at these conventions to make money too. And if you look around at a lot of times, we're people are constantly like not wanting to pay for an autograph or a signature, a photo or anything off their table, but they want to hold their lineup um, and, and share some story from when they were 10 years old. Um, So I don't know, like I said, I've never had a bad experience with him. Um, You're like, you're
1: like, let me tell, let me talk about what makes cons great and tell you why you shouldn't do that at the entertainer's table.
0: Well, you know, again, pay for you—they're there for money too, so pay them.
2: I agree that they're there for money, which is also why I think that if you're an actor, act like you give a fuck to be there. And in three out of four interactions with Tom Savini, he did not act like he gave a fuck to be there, or that you were handing him money for what he had done. Three out of four
0: times. I guess you got to talk about the cool things, but you're not supposed to talk to him because you don't want to hold up his line. Like you just said, but no. I said you're not spending money. I spent money. <laughs> I think Vinny was spending money. Yep. Well, I, I said I'm, I know that he said some shitty things to other people, but just sometimes I sometimes think some of the complaints aren't valid.
2: Like it was the first time I bought his, his second book, and my sister in law was there with me getting it too, and she was like wanting to sign. He's like, "Well, those there are already signed." Yeah, I mean, you could you sign it to me? Yeah, those there are already signed. You just couldn't give a shit. Could not give a shit that you were in a line to pay money to meet him to buy his wares. Just couldn't give a shit. Yeah. And that is, I approached it a different way. Another time that I went, uh, I had gotten to induct Chilly Billy into the Horror Host Hall of Fame. And... He used to show up, as we learned in the documentary, when he was a young guy doing makeups. He'd show up at the studio with people made up as monsters mm-hmm. for Chili Billy, and they'd bring him in. He did not give a fuck about my uh, segue into conversation with him then. Uh, but when a friend of ours, Brian Blair, had done a sculpture a co- few years ago of a Bigfoot head, we were walking by and Tom Savini said, did you make that? He said, yeah. He's like, how much you want for it? Brian said, Ah, man, I'm keeping it. He's like, I'm going to take it over there to the, because that whore hound, they had a bunch of Bigfoot people. Bob Gimlin. Uh, I'm going to have them sign it. And he's like, Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> but fuck you. And with a smirk on his face, and I was like, Oh, now I get it. You have to let him initiate,
0: engage you.
2: Yes. So anyway.
0: Show us on the doll where he touched.
2: <laughs> so, but I was my biggest surprise about this documentary was how vulnerable Tom Savini was in it. Mm-hmm. How open he was about mm-hmm. his insecurities, about his uh, the whole be- his flaws as a human being. The like,
0: whole whole beginning of that movie, like uh, I don't think a lot of people would have talked about. You know, uh, uh, you know, your child's put up for adoption, or you're not yeah. close to this child, or
2: and he was he was you know insecure about his his nose, and and he was a classic overachiever, and all these kind and like as and he's a single dad, and all this stuff. And as I watched it, I was like, wait a minute, where's that prick that I've seen <laughs> at conventions for a decade?
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I felt like this documentary helped inform some of that stuff. Don't get me wrong. I completely agree with what you guys are saying. When you sign up for a convention, it shouldn't be solely to grease your wallet. Like, that's even why I don't want to hear
2: that argument of everyone
3: has an off day. Right. Well, I it's work like, five
2: days a week in customer service, and I still have to put on a bullshit smile face for people. So my you know?
3: experience was I love his work, and no matter how he behaves, I always will. That's yes. fine. Um, and so, so many of these movies he did work in means a lot to me. But when I met him, he didn't even look up. Other than to look at the camera when I got a picture with him, I didn't let it ruin my day. I just thought, well, he's not one of the friendly ones. Right. Um, But it is, you know, I I think we need to address this real quick, something that all rubbed us the wrong way, and that was the post about flashbulb friends. Yes. Because I feel like we're going to get into a lot of complimentary and good stuff, so Mm -hmm. let's just get this out of the way real quick. It was Gunnar Hansen, right? Yep. When he passed away and people were sharing pictures, fans with him. And he put up this bizarre thing. Like He seemed bothered that people were pretending to be close to Gunnar Hansen by sharing convention pictures. And it was just really off-putting and calloused. And um, I think that is what helped fuel some of the less than exciting interactions. Mm -hmm. Because he wasn't overly rude when i met him no he didn't go he
2: didn't go out of his way to be rude
3: right and so i I just wanted to clarify with that like i didn't have a great experience in experience meeting him but it wasn't a horrible one he was just not interested Mm -hmm. in any kind of interaction he signed the picture took took one with me and that was it but um the documentary really shows some interesting things because we've all been watching these featurettes on DVDs for years, mm-hmm. where we like we go through Romero and then enter Savini, who couldn't be there because of the Vietnam War, but now he gets to do Dawn of the Dead. We explain that, and it's always limited, mm-hmm. and so it was neat to really dig into all of that stuff with this.
1: Yeah, yeah. While we're shitting on the guy before we compliment him, uh, <laughs> my I, my first experience with him was at my very first con, and I had just met George Romero who could not have been nicer. And then I met Ken Forey, who could not have been nicer. And then I go to Tom Savini's table, and he won't even get off the phone while he signs my autograph and then says, do you want a picture? I was like, yeah, I'd like to. And just holds the phone out of camera view long enough to take a picture and then gets right back on the phone and goes right back behind the table. Like, yeah. So also did not get the warm and and fuzzies from him. However, then watching this film and everything that you all just said about him being so open and frank and, and vulnerable, and uh, I think I texted Benny and I was like, well, goddamn, now I'm feeling like uh, maybe I was too hard on the guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he said well, he couldn't do movies anymore because he was raising a single father, raising a daughter, so he started doing conventions to make money. Right. And then you're like, oh, man, the babysitter probably had him on the phone. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah,
1: uh, someone talking about child custody
0: or something probably had him on the phone. And here I am. I'm like, get off your phone. <laughs> Take a picture with me. Well, again, I mean, like, I don't know. I'm sure if, like, I've never seen him do a and a but I feel like a and a would be a whole different thing. Cause it's him talking about him working. Because I don't know. I'm sure if you threw some of us into the tables, I don't know. I think some of them think that you're probably people walk up to you. You say hi to him. you take their money, you sign something, and see ya. Because, um, yeah, like I like I said, he's never been rude. He's always been nice-ish. The perks of being a wallflower, I think he thought I was messing with him. Because he probably hadn't heard that much at that time. I'm with
2: you on that. It's nice to see him,
0: um,
2: Look, if, if somebody's paying me $20 or over for an under-five-minute interaction, I'm going to smile my ass off. Mm-hmm. Because I just made twenty dollars well, in under sure. five minutes.
3: The thing that surprises me the most, and we covered in the documentary, he's a monster kid. Yeah, yeah. He knows what it's like to be a fan. So I don't know, just weird.
0: But um, I did really like the doc that uh, uh, where he talks about Night of the Living Dead and how all this interference. I had never seen any of the outtakes from Night of the Living Dead, so it was cool to see like all the um, headshots they they instantly... the remake that he did. Yeah, the yeah. remake, and it was cool too that he hated it was just a bad experience for him because he was going through a divorce and then he was not happy with what they did with the movie. That's um, that bad. when he talks about where he actually, that he's avoided the movie and he actually at a screening, watched it and was like, Oh, I see what people are talking about. My mind was blown by
2: his perspective on that
1: movie. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Cause I thought it would have been like, you know, his, his moment of pride. Like I got the, Make the movie that I didn't get to be involved and this in. this is one
2: of the best remakes I've ever seen. Yeah, right. Like, I love and his version of Night of the Living Dead. And, and to hear just <laughs> the difference in perspective of somebody, because I don't know what his intention was before it came out, you know, so he's got all of that behind the scenes. But I couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to see his perspective that it wasn't that good. yeah. But then it was nice to see him finally kind of make amends with it and realize, okay, look, I did put out a decent thing. Because a. I love that movie. I love it too.
0: Well, not only is it good, but it also because everybody got screwed out of the original because of, of the yes. trademark, that it, that it which was the intention of the remake. So all of the people involved actually was making money off this movie. Yeah. One last thing I'll say about Night of the Living
1: Dead, and we'll give Professor a chance to say anything about it, but... Uh, yeah, everything that you guys just said. Very surprised to hear how he felt about it, and interesting to hear about the backstory with his divorce. But I also love the story about Tony Todd basically yoking him up, <laughs> and saying, yeah. "You go, you go, put me in this film."
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I love that remake, and I I feel like it's frequently overlooked on, on his behalf. Yeah, like we think of the movie, and I, I think most people really like it, but I don't always first think of Tom Savini because I so associate him with all of his uh, makeup work and special effects, but he did a hell of a job with that. And I think it's, it's a really cool thing to think about that, you know, he's doing the the remake for Romero and, the relationship that they'd have in Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. through all those films, he nailed it with that. It's a yeah. great man,
2: and, and I also, of course, get into a whole different angle of things as we all know Tom Savini is a special effects guy, which is where I come to an appreciation with him for the practical effects. But on the other hand, Tom Savini was a stunt man. He was an actor on stage. He was a, a stage makeup guy.
0: Local theater. Yeah. Like <laughs> that production the has, of Dracula. Like I would love to see that.
2: Yeah. That guy has done so many things that I wasn't aware of besides the makeup that he did. That that was really cool to see as well. And it, I I just like this is why I watch this kind of thing, because it shows you a three dimensional person. Rather than that one thing that I knew Tom Savini for, mm-hmm. I now know him for all these other things that he's done as well. That he may not have gotten all of the awards for and the accolades. So I, I really enjoyed. I like this documentary. This is everything I look for in a documentary. It scratched all the itches
0: well, for me. I feel like sometimes we we we. I don't even think we. It's not even thought about really. But we just picked four documentaries that all pretty heartfelt that. Not only that, we're seeing we're seeing George Romero and Sid Haig, so that's already a little rough. I was going to ask, how did you guys feel seeing Sid? Um, man, it, and not only that, but it was it was it was that last year was rough for Sid, even though he most people would have not got off the couch, and he kept going for fans. So you know that that was probably when he was like still doing well.
2: He, well, and he looked good. Yeah, it, you know, as good as Sid Haig ever looked. <laughs> um. But he was still meaty. You know what I mean? Because we all remember those last that last year or two at cons when we all knew something was up with Sid, even though publicly that yeah. was being denied.
1: He was supposed to on Instagram. I'm fine, motherfuckers.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was. it did. Uh, it did hit a little something for me to see Sid in those interviews. Yeah. Well,
0: between that and then he shares the story of being in Vietnam with the duck. <laughs> yeah, they called yeah, how I the duck saved story. his life. The and duck slayer. Then, I'm going to be honest. Like When he started talking about his
2: father, that did it for me. That was a very... like We're all lucky enough and at a point in our lives right now where we all still have our parents.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I can't completely sympathize with what it, with what he's going through, but I understand the sentiment where he privately took footage of his dad without his dad knowing
3: it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was really sweet.
2: And then, and like he said, now, anytime I miss my dad, I can watch him. Yep. And, and, and it's nothing. Day. it's nothing forced. Yeah. It's the exact same things that he was appreciating about his dad then. It wasn't an interaction it was just watching him exist as his father well, he had, he had, and that he had, he's now documented that where he'll never lose that he th- those memories are as clear as they can possibly be because they are documented yeah. and i thought that was rather touching as well and the fact and i loved hearing how supportive his dad
3: was yeah. mm-hmm.
2: of what he was able to parlay into a
3: living and i was going to say something i connected with this with him in this documentary. And I feel like my entire family's this way, which is not letting the punches define you and define your day. It's about finding happiness in your own space. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he's always done that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, as we mentioned, he, he chose, and I think it was a great decision to focus on custody over career. Yeah. Um, And when you see like blood sucking Pharaohs of Pittsburgh, which I have that he worked on in the early nineties, you think, this poor bastard. Uh, like he, you know, had some of these other opportunities, but at the same time, he's carved out his own space and carried the torch from Romero in that area. You can go see his makeup school. He's got his own like fortress, uh, that, you know, everyone knows about. And if you're lucky you get to visit occasionally with mm-hmm. especially other celebrities. Um, he carved out his space there and he continued to be who he was there. And I, I, I just, I do admire that about him and I, it, even more so with this documentary, because I knew a couple of those things. I had no idea the parade of shit he's been fed over the years, mm-hmm. like with just bad blows. Yeah. So it was very interesting to see that it's not him seeking pity. It's just him talk, talking about his story. To be honest. Yeah. When I,
0: I think because I, I feel like they were right on top of each other, too, is that he was talking about how he just wanted to uh, just hug his dad and say, I love you but he kind of mentions too, like when he's in Vietnam of how beautiful the country and the people were. Cause he was, he was like, even men would hold hands and he's like, not in a, a loving like homosexual way, but just as friends. And, and that's something like America. If you look at it, did doesn't matter if it's your dad or not. If you tell, you know, like I love you, mm-hmm. then you're looked at as weird. Um, but I have never, I never knew he was on Letterman. So I did enjoy that part too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it made me think, I was like, really? Um, I feel like with each generation, it's it's almost like it really is almost like magicians with special effects men. Is a lot of the ones from the past definitely didn't talk about what they did and share their secrets. But um, even though we still kind of get more of like Rick Baker and stuff, where they're they're in Fango and stuff more. You really weren't seeing them on Letterman and stuff like that, and I, I just feel like Savini's definitely um, not only is he known, but he's gave so many people like like all the things that are huge right now happened because of Tom Savini. I mean, you couldn't have had Walking Dead. I mean, obviously, Ramiro is part of that, too. But uh, the whole special effects team from Walking Dead pretty much started because of Savini.
1: Right. It's a
0: good doc.
3: I'd recommend it. Plus, you get to see footage of some of the best special effects ever. All right. Stuff like the Prowler, the Burning. It's fun just seeing that all spliced. I, again,
0: though, uh, all, the, all the stuff that's came out from those, I've, they definitely had some stuff in there I'd never seen, even from Friday the 13th. Um, some stuff that was snuck in there, so nice to see. Good times. Okay. You just stroke out, Benny? I'm good. Right.
1: <laughs> Rolling into the last one, which would be my pick. Toddy,
0: can you give us the dates All and right. the details? Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, 2019, directed by Xavier Bergen, uh, and it's based off the book uh, by Robin R. Means Coleman who was also in the documentary as well. And we just
2: thought this subject needed four white <laughs> <in> relations <laughs> dudes' <to> perspective.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's get that right out of the way first.
1: So this is a documentary about um, African-Americans in, in horror cinema, uh, both as um, the audience and as the creators. And uh, let's talk about how this is a subject that I was largely ignorant about. <laughs> in For sure. perspective.
2: For sure. Yeah.
1: yeah you
0: ignorant.
1: Yes, exactly. So uh, at the top, I want to say that uh, even in trying to talk about the documentary, it's going to be from uh, an angle that still doesn't completely understand it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I'm glad it exists. That's why I chose it. Um, this was my second or third viewing of it, just because I, I think it's so well made and I find it so interesting. Um, so, yeah, what about y'all? had I'm sure each of you this is at least your second
3: viewing yes, this is yes. my second viewing loved it the first time and was excited when you picked it
2: same second viewing here as well uh, and was glad to watch it again
0: uh same uh, I think the fir- the first one was just enjoyable was this was this February of last year or the year before last year? I don't remember time is weird um, <laughs> but again another another documentary that has convention friends and, and some other friends that... Um, I'm like, man, it's just like watching like home movies for all four of these films except for freaking... I've never met him, but... Um, I don't know. I, I think this t- second viewing hit even more, I think, mm-hmm. from just having the distance of, of conventions and um, being able to talk to some of the people that's in this documentary, um, which I, I feel like almost... I actually... I feel like there's a few names that that, that got like like Toy Newkirk should have been in this too, but but honestly a lot of the names that is in this, like actor wise, they are not people that you don't see at conventions as much as they should. like they're always the names that are left off of lists. Yeah. So I do love that um like um Ken Sagos and Kelly Jo Mentor and um Rachel e- True. Exactly. Like like even when even when they do a craft reunion you don't always see them breaking their neck to get Rachel true or nightmare Four reunion. Ken and toy are almost the, always the last two that are announced. Um, so it's nice to get to watch a whole doc where, um, their, their point of view, um, you know, which might not even be as well recepted as well. Cause I mean, uh, Miguel Nunez talks about, um, like, yeah, I was just, uh, I was in a Friday the 13th movie and you weren't. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, Again, um, if they weren't playing these roles, what roles would they have played? Mm-hmm. Like, honestly. Um, so maybe they shouldn't get as much grief as they should. Yeah, and to think about
1: the year that we lived through between the first time we watched this when it came out. As yeah, I was trying to, 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 to avoid it. that ever happening. Yeah, like,
3: they're getting to sit in a movie theater. <laughs>
1: So um, basically they really did a great job of just like breaking it down as a timeline of, of the first time that, that black folks were on screen and what each decade looked like as that progressed on. And it's interesting, too, that it feels like Get Out was the perfect jumping off point to make this documentary. And I think they really took uh wow. good advantage of that in a very positive way. Um, but I like the quote that it opens with when they say, we've always loved horror. Horror, unfortunately, hasn't always loved us. And I thought that was a really good way to open the film. So we talk start with talking about Get Out and the, the significance of that. And we've done it on this podcast here. But then they talked about a movie that I saw in either – I think it was my film history class because it's pretty significant, but it's The Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the way that it portrayed um, – black people is just uncivilized. When
2: black people aren't even playing black people. Yeah, white
1: people in black base, black base playing black people um, and portraying them in just the worst well, light possible. That, that
0: film at some point was actually used almost as a recruitment for the... The Klan. Yeah. Absolutely. What, 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 was it the 50s? Like, even in Indiana, was huge. Um, where people actually thought, it weirdly parallel, but uh, they thought it was their civil duty to join the Klan because it was this Christian, mm-hmm. like they didn't realize all. I mean, in fairness, they just I guess didn't realize the other part of it, and and they actually thought that the African American was coming for the white women, and
1: yeah, and this film was part of that. And was it Woodrow Wilson, which which president
3: when that film came out? Yeah, it would have been around that time. I, I feel like it was Wilson. whoever was in the White House endorsed it. Yeah, because so. he he declared. World War One. So yeah. that's the Birth of a Nation I think was nineteen fifteen. And mm-hmm. the other thing to contextualize that movie and point out is it was a massive movie. Yeah. This was not one that just came out amongst twenty others that month and some people went and saw it. Like this was huge budget celebrated and stood and regarded for decades as one of the bigger movies ever made mm-hmm. until you get into the more wealthier eras of the studio system with like huge Selznick productions and things. Birth of a nation was a big deal. Oh yeah. This wasn't just a, a random movie. Yeah. It was, not only the a,
1: topic. it was not only a cornerstone of racism. It was a cornerstone of cinema. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it was because of birth of a nation that led to the first black directors really understanding and emphasizing that it's time for black directors to tell black stories. And so that went into that early era of film. And then they brought up the point and they were like, so from Birth of a Nation you start with some of those early horror films and they said, you know all of the creatures, all of the monsters had somewhat had black features or stirred up the fears of what white people feared about black people in them. They were like, look at the noses, look at the mouths, look at what the creature represents. And it's somehow like not all of them but a majority of them are, are representative of the black person in America. I
2: found myself at times in this movie getting defensive when I would hear something. Mm -hmm. And then when I would let my reason take over and hear, basically it was, why am I taking this personally? Why am I taking this as something that is accusatory towards me? And taking the moment to step back away from myself and say, okay, this isn't my point of view. This is a point of view of of, of another people. Maybe you repress your knee-jerk reaction. And if they're seeing this, maybe it's worth being heard. Mm-hmm. Stop and listen to that point of view. For instance... Huge King Kong fan.
1: Oh, yeah. That's the next point I was
2: going to make. Huge King Kong fan. Being a white male from the time period I was raised, racism never would have crossed my mind with this movie. But then when somebody else says, hey, why don't you take a look at this from another perspective? And then you look at, oh, All of the native black women are sacrificed to Kong, and Kong kills them and eats them. But when you put a fair-haired white woman up there, this giant gorilla that couldn't fit his wiener in you if he tried falls in love with you.
3: (laughs) Uh, That phrasing
2: caught me off guard. (laughs) But but after that's pointed out, it's like, oh. Well, I never looked at it from that perspective because it's not my perspective. But now that I hear it said and kind of tilt my head and look at it from that direction. I get it.
1: Yeah.
2: I get it now. And that's where I found myself a lot of the way throughout this documentary. And that's not to say that every instance made me go, what? But I will say I did take a step backwards. Like, well, creature from the black lagoon, look at the lips on the character. Mm -hmm. I'm like a fish. You know what I mean? Like it's got it's got a fish mouth on it. But if more than one person from another culture has taken this they see this as a thing, then maybe there's some validity to it. Yeah. And maybe rather than just brush them off, I should shut the fuck up and try to see it from their perspective.
0: Was it similar when we did a vampire episode and I said that vampires were usually depicted as gay people when you were like, Bleh.
2: Oh, I won't disagree with you on that. Vampires have always been heavy gay. <laughs> <laughs> heavy only.
0: Gay. I mean, I mean, down, down to the it's like uh, they they are not accepted into church, and uh, you know, and they they have problems with mirrors, usually looking in them. Um, <laughs> uh, I, no, I so and that's the thing is I think I think we live in a time where people are so um, like people will not admit that they're ignorant to stuff. And, and here's the thing: until you learn about something, you are ignorant. And um, I mean, I would never have thought of the King Kong angle ever. To me, it was a giant monkey. But I, I really don't have a reason to. I mean, I'm not um, in that thing. And I think this is a part of this documentary is important too, because um, a, as it goes on and they talk about uh, like Rachel True and stuff mentions is where. You know, she was playing in the movie because it was just about witches, and then all of a sudden they make her character because of who she is, they put race in it. But then she's seen little girls that are like probably never seen somebody that looks like them in a movie. Um, so again, if you think about a time where when all you are in a film is the maid or the butler or. The African tribesman or witch doctor. Um and then you start I, I think that yeah. I found the angle of concerned black friend for the white girl.
1: Yeah, that's what Rachel talked about. She's like yeah. every time I got cast I was there to say, Are you okay?
2: And you I never be and because of of my position in society, I never noticed it. But after she said that I was like, Holy shit They show <laughs> Alfred
3: Woodard and Annabelle jumping out the window and pointing out, it's like, no, her whole existence was to help you. To K- sacrifice K- themselves. K- Kelly Jo them.
0: Winter is a great example, which if you think about her films, even her brief parts, to me, that's what a lot of people remember her from those films. And probably a lot of it is her personality comes out. But uh, to me, I cared more about them than some of the, the friends that they were um, protecting. But it's, it, it is, it's like they get glazed over. And, and another part that I think all of us at the table can relate to though Is if you didn't see yourself in a film, if you watch a movie and it's a bunch of stuffy people and you can't see yourself, and then there's a monster that is an outcast and all of this thing, so where some of the monsters were probably like, "Man, that sucks," because you know, basically at the end of the day, they're saying that the fly has AIDS and it represents the gay person. That sucks, but if you don't see yourself in anything, and you can start relating to the monster, which is why I think a lot of people in the horror community are drawn to the horror community, because they see themselves in the monster probably in a positive way now, um, except for, again, the last four years got kind of screwy, and now even some of those communities uh, think that it's okay to come out and show their hatred for you, but it kind of defeats the purpose. So
3: Yeah, it's interesting takes through time mm-hmm. um, with how things are perceived uh, retrospectively, and I think it's important to point out that... Some of these things that we talk about, like, for instance, King Kong is the example we we've used. that's not to say that the filmmakers intentionally were playing on racial sensitivity. Right. It's to say it's a reflection
1: subconscious
3: right. yeah, of a moment. and so and you can you can look at any angle with with horror films reflecting you know, what was the great documentary? was it uh, nightmares in red, white, and Blue? Yeah. Mm-hmm. that reflected on the different generations and what led into the horror genre. Yeah. And so I think that that's an important distinction in this is this isn't, this documentary is not setting out to say like Willis O'Brien when he made the King Kong model was racist. It's saying these little parts add up over the years. Yeah, And so, and I, I think not having a true narrator to this and truly just having a community of people from the entertainment industry hash this out in conversation really helps that cause.
1: It was really cool. It was really cool for them to do that stick them in a movie theater, yeah. have two prominent people from their era mm-hmm. talk about it together. It was just masterfully done Yeah. in that perspective. Yeah. Cause you're right. They're not coming out to cancel anybody or cancel right. any film, but they're coming out to say, this has been in front of you this whole time, but because of your culture in place, you haven't seen it. Let us explain to you how we saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, I'm not gonna dwell a whole lot it's interesting, you know, they get to Night of the Living Dead and they talk about the significance of that. And it's even more significant that George Romero did not write that part for a black lead.
3: And I love that he went out of his way to not own that. Yeah. By like in terms of saying that he cast him because he was a, a black guy. Yeah. He's he, like, said, no, he's, no, he was the best actor he's the
1: best actor that showed up. Yeah. Yeah. And so they talked about how that was a big turning point for them to see uh I mean it's the first time you had a black protagonist. Boston white people around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're like, we never I'm slapped a white woman. Yeah, slapped a white woman. Yeah. And so then, um, talked about how they got into the the era of black exploitation and how while it was exploitation, at the same time, there was a lot of important representation going on. And they talked about Blackula and they talked about Abby and they talked about Sugar Hill and Ganja and Hess and just, which
3: had Dwayne also.
1: Yeah, great. Um, And then they get and they think, oh, well, you know, black exploitation, while exploitative, had its place, but surely things are going to get better in the eighties. But I just love how they have that set up. (laughs) Things are gonna get better in the eighties. And then we took a step back in the eighties. And they were like, So we get to the eighties and now all the black people die first in the film? Oh, that's because you're you're at least saying that, that that black people are tough and strong, but you show how strong your monster is by killing the black characters first.
3: The Scatman Carruthers. I, I got to say, as a Shining fan, I just sat there with my little brain melted. Yeah. They pointed out, they're like, he's got the Shining and he can't see. And I was like, oh my God. Why have I never thought Well, about and, this? and
2: I've even read the book. And when they were like, and he didn't die in the book. And I was like, shit, he didn't yeah. die in the book.
3: Well,
1: <laughs> it just, you just watch it fly over all uh, over. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, and then also, so from that, if they weren't the first ones to die, they were token characters, like Rachel True talking yeah. about her character in the craft, um, or as the, uh, they were a sacrificial character, and that they gave themselves to save a white protagonist uh-huh. to say, oh, look at what a good friend they were. Um, so the 80s, kind of a step back, but as
0: Miguel Nunez would say, fuck you, I was in Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, I ain't mad about it. Well, and 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 also too, and that's why I like this doc is uh, nobody nobody was doing wrong by 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 taking these parts or um, you know really if, if if something is to blame I mean it should be the studios and um, you know and some of the makers are we gonna die?
1: Quit looking at me. Tell your
0: story. <laughs> you should have had that plugged in. Um, it's Robert's pacemaker. So since he threw me off, I, I was gonna <laughs> say something that I've never thought of. I mean, I've thought about it, but not in the um aspect as some of the uh that is brought up is the original Night of the Living Dead. That just by chain just by casting him, it ch- and then they talk about the ending and that you know, the ending, these people look like it does down south where they're looking mm-hmm. for the next luncheon. And you know, a couple of them, when they said you know that he wasn't dead and they still killed him. And then just go throw him on the fire that, you know, a couple of them were like, couldn't even get up when the movie ended, that it was just so much. And then they also talk about, too, that like why they're, you know, Romero's driving the film down, um, you know, basically to, to sell the film, you know, King mm-hmm. gets assassinated. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so I don't know. Like, I, th- I think that was probably like a huge moment. And then I love that they brought up um, the girl with all the gifts Where same thing. It was supposed to be a little girl. Um, girl with all the gifts, not Blackula um, <laughs> Yep, I got it <laughs> <laughs> Well you're getting ahead of yourself there We're getting to that oh, I side. didn't realize we had the timeline, sorry <laughs> <laughs> The king of timelines uh,
1: So we get to the 90s Time doesn't matter anymore And they're talking about the importance of people under the stairs And now you have a black child lead in a film And this is one of the first times that's really happened um, But really what blew me away Was when they got to the Candyman Same blew me away because i always thought candy man was done so well handled so well for having you know the writer and director that it did and they were like you realize that's just black man chasing white woman again right and i was like no what? What? <laughs> <laughs> but they did make up for it in saying like so full admission as i said before on the show i didn't like Candyman the first time i saw it but then when i watched it again it was in the context of going into the the whole franchise.
2: I was looking for Freddie. I was looking for Jason. I was looking for Michael right. when I watched it the first time.
1: And so now, because I've only seen it in the context of the franchise, the franchise fleshes out the story. Yes. So it's not just black man chasing white woman. And they, at least a lot, they, they went on to say that, Oh yes, the franchise does do a good job. It mm-hmm. it, but if you just leave Candyman by itself as that film, I got bad news for you. Well, also, King Kong, yeah.
0: also though, his target though was like his community and, and you know, and something I never thought about, but you know, if they, you know, all these people did to him what they did, why would like, that would have been it's exactly what Freddie did. Freddie was killed by this angry mob, so he went after their kids. So why was he attacking black people? That exactly. like criticism. Yes. So I think that and, was part of the issues.
2: And Grizzly and I talked about this the other night. That wasn't something that I ever considered because in my head, the reason why Candyman was in Cabrini Green was because it was an urban legend to black folks.
0: Yeah, well, he's the and one, that's who he's was writing on the wall.
2: That's who was keeping it alive, and that's why he was present in that area, and not sure. so much that he was a. Just attacking black people, it was that that was the culture that was keeping the legend alive.
3: And also to think about again, like I mentioned earlier, a reflection of the time, uh, racial tensions were incredibly high in the early nineties, mm-hmm. and so I think you're you're pushing buttons a little bit with that because yeah. the the Clyde Barker writing wasn't set there, so yeah, not London, right? Um, so I think that may and the have director was British too. Yep. Yeah.
2: So once again, that's something that just because I didn't see it doesn't mean I should invalidate somebody else's perspective sure. who saw it a different way.
3: Oh yeah. A movie can be wonderful and problematic.
1: Yeah. So then they talked about um, just the importance that also in the nineties, there was actually um, really important and significant non-horror black films coming out in the nineties. And that was one of the first areas that that had really happened um, of, of black writers telling black stories on film. Um, on a wide-scale level. They also come in with Tales from the Hood. I was
3: so glad we got time spent with that. I've loved that movie since I was a kid, and it's never gotten the props that it really should.
1: Oh, man. I just saw it for the first time in the last year or two, and it blew me away. And it's just as relevant now as when it came out.
3: It's It's so good. It's so hard for me to watch
2: David Allen Greer. He oh, does I know. Right? Anything he's good, though, but
1: a comedic actor, yeah, he's great in it. But you're right, it's hard. I'm like, no, man, you're in living color. You keep
2: waiting on him to mug or to make, you know what I mean. But he's good. Yeah, I had no idea of the, that he was a classically trained oh, actor. Yeah.
3: yeah, he's an interesting guy.
1: Yeah. So, tales from the hood, vignettes of uh, in store important stories from black neighborhoods and black lives, and so that was really interesting. Uh, and I also didn't realize this was another bomb they dropped on me. Tales from the Crypt presents Demon Knight. Jada Pinkett
3: Smith. Technically kind of the first black final girl. I had never thought about it until Oregon. they talked about it. But yeah, yeah, that was kind of
0: mind-blowing. <laughs> which, uh, which Universal didn't even, they wanted a white girl. Like they didn't want Jada Pinkett Smith.
1: Interesting. Um, I love the, the side story about Bones.
0: Um... Where Snoop blushed when he got to kiss Pam Grier.
3: <laughs> yeah, i blame him. I blushed when I met her.
0: Which, uh, but I think I think Bones is kind of like I don't even remember it being a big deal when it came out either. And I'm like, yeah. I love that movie just because it's the throwback to all the all the seventies exploitation films. Yeah. So then it
1: just kind of wraps up in the 2000s uh, with Attack the Block being a significant mm-hmm. film, uh, just representing uh, neighborhood and character and, and friendship and stuff like that. But then, finally, the girl with all the gifts, as, as Toddie was alluding to. Um, also, like Night of the Living Dead, not written with the idea of a black lead playing the part. It's just that that girl was the best person for the job.
0: But, but, she got it. but it's crazy because just... Because of that, it changed the whole film.
1: It did. Right. Especially that line at the end where the, the, the white guard or the guy hunting her down says it's, it's all over. Everything's over. And she's like, well, it's, it's not over. It's just not yours anymore. you know. And I thought that was interesting. So
2: the One thing I wanted to point out on Get Out is when Jordan Peele says there are no good white people in this movie. And it was intentional. He said, always in a movie, there's always that one good white person that's, you know, there to help the black character or this and that. And he's like, and in this movie, there isn't a redeemable white character. And I think that is unexpected. And that's why I remember that reveal where the girlfriend was in on it. Yeah. I kind, of, my I kind of figured mom. she was in
0: on it, but then as it went, I'm like, no, the brother clearly is. And yeah, you really do think, well, there has Give to be You figured to be somebody. Yeah.
2: And I love that they exploited that trope that you don't really even, I guess, outwardly recognize, at least from my perspective, as being a trope that's there, yeah. mm-hmm. but totally ignored
0: it and this and that. So...
3: Yeah, I thought that I thought that was rather – well, his convictions to avoid watering it down is what made it so good. Yeah, Something that uh, I think is a
0: great example that I never thought about is that he picked Cotton to get out of the chair.
3: Yeah. And, yeah, I, and
0: that I, he I, used a buck to kill the guy, and I was <laughs> like, i that went over my head. Yep, yep. Yeah, tell me,
1: because I, I always forget until I watch it again and it gets brought up. Who of you, whose heart sank – Every time the cop pulls, the cop car pulls up at the end of. Well, I think out. every person yeah. ever. is oh, <laughs> yeah. like, oh no, we're getting Night of the Living Dead all over. Such <laughs> <Yeah>. a smart <laughs>
3: approach to that.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then Lil Rail jumps out. <laughs> oh, I love him. Because <laughs> we are T.S. Which, motherfucking A.
0: I think that was probably a good uh, a good uh, thing to change the original ending of of being bleak and is that it's him that shows up and.
3: Well, I think it's interesting yeah. too. This whole experience with this documentary is that I. I haven't grown up around a lot of of some of these things in terms of racism. And so when they point some of this stuff out, it's surprising to me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so beneficial as a viewer, for me at least, some of these things I I don't catch on to because I'm not a piece of shit. I haven't thought about those things Mm -hmm. and people that way. But I, I really appreciate the things that they're clarifying i like because that, i like that it
2: forces me to see something from a different perspective like oh, yeah. i said <laughs> initially some of it's uncomfortable for me and it's a knee-jerk reaction to get defensive but to to uh, it's uh, to a bit of a maturity to a person i think where yeah. where you have to separate yourself and be like okay look that's not my point of view but why let me try to see this from this point of view and for that
3: i'm completely grateful for this movie definitely
1: i think it's a great documentary Big
3: success for that alone. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and like I said, I I think it's great too that there's like Ernest Dickerson. I don't think I ever even seen what he looked like until this documentary came out and he's been making huge films since uh, I know at least since the early 90s. Um, So again, um, even some of the actors that you've seen in a a bunch of stuff, these aren't always actors that you get to see talk about films. So I think even just the people they chose, it was great to get to hear their side of things. So Recommend to anybody? Yeah, absolutely. Lots to learn. It's uh, it's it's on
1: par with stuff that I watched in like film classes when I was in college. Right. Yeah. So. All right. Very good. Should we wrap it up? Yes.
3: <laughs> no, That's only, all right.
1: Though we're only at the hour forty mark.
3: So. Good conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can't let it stop. So. Wrapping up a horror documentary Monster MASH on the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I have been hanging out with
3: Professor
2: Wagstaff,
0: Venomous Vinny, hot toddy, stay scary. Don't cross streams.